Today is Wednesday, August 30th, 2023, and welcome to episode 247 of Fault Lines and our next installment in our summer AI series, Breaking Barriers, Understanding the AI Revolution. I'm Jessica Jones, NSI's Deputy Executive Director, and I'm excited to be here today with Ili Bayraktori, President and CEO of the Special Competitive Studies Project. Before launching SCSP, Mr. Bayraktari served as Executive Director of the National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence and previously served as Chief of Staff to former National Security Advisor, Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster. He also began his long career at DOD in 2010, where he served in the office of the Undersecretary of Policy, first as a country director for Afghanistan and later for India. So before we explore your current work and get more into you know, the AI landscape, I just wanted to ask you a couple questions about the National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence, where I just said you were executive director. So for those that follow our show, we may know, the, the audience may know what it is, but just a little background. The commission was established by the 2019 NDAA, and among its many objectives, it was tasked with making recommendations necessary to advance the development of AI and considered, among items, how the U.S. can maintain a tech advantage in AI, workforce issues, ethical considerations, and the risk associated with adversarial advantages in, in AI. So if you could just tell us a little, you know, insider baseball, how did the commission come to be? For us today, when we think about the Hill, how much congressional willpower did it take to establish the commission? And do you kind of see that same policy make a momentum on the Hill right now? Thanks, Jessica. And uh, nice to be here with you today. So in about, um, in 2018, I think our Congress uh, really uh, was preoccupied with two things. Uh, in the tech space. Number one is everything coming out of Silicon Valley was indicating that there's a powerful technology coming our way called artificial intelligence. I mean, this was nothing new. Artificial intelligence was on an up and up since 2012, maybe. But I think by 2018, you had so many signals and so many indicators that uh, this is really one of those general purpose technologies that's going to have huge implications for our society and our economy. And so Congress was briefed on, the, on this, uh, or I think was informed. And I think the second thing that drove the establishment of the NSAI was really uh, signals coming out of Beijing. Uh, I think both in classified and unclassified, what our members of Congress saw was a country uh, that is uh, treating AI at different speed and scale. They were interested in really going all in, both in terms of strategy, resources, dedication, and implementation in terms of getting ahead in the AI space, because they thought AI will leapfrog them um, uh, in, the, in the competition against us. So with these two background factors in mind, Congress established the National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence. And I usually tell uh, the outside audience that the purpose of the commission was really to look at what can our federal government agencies responsible for the national security missions. And here uh, I'm generally talking about DOD, Department of Defense, and the intelligence community agencies, what can they do more with AI, what they were doing, and what were the obstacles to do more. And so we were tasked by the Armed Services Committee on both uh, the House and the Senate side. Uh, the goal was to have a commission that runs two years. When you look at it in the past and in our history, you, Congress usually created these commissions because on one end, something went wrong, and so Congress thought that a commission would look back and provide that investigative background research of what went wrong. I think 9-11 Commission is one of, the most, one of the most famous commissions of something that has gone wrong. And then Congress required or established a commission to look back and see what went wrong. And I think on the second instance, Congress creates these commissions because there's a lack of policy ownership uh, or decision making regarding an, an issue that it's important to our national security. And I think in this case... Our commission, the AI commission, fell into the second category because this powerful technology was making its way 
But on our federal side, on the federal government side, there was not a clear ownership of who does the policies, who implements them, what can we do more. So that's how Congress established National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence. Um, I think to your second question, Jessica, we really enjoyed a truly bipartisan support. And I think that it was a testament of, A, how much Congress understood the importance of AI or technology as a, as a competition domain. And then, B, I think that just, just a general sentiment, or a bipartisan sentiment on the things to stay ahead of China. And I think as a result of that, we were able to pass 55 pieces of legislation to date based on our final report. And, um, you know, uh, when you see intent, you know, like indirectly uh, the influence that that general sentiment of bipartisanship continued, you see it with the CHIPS Act, you see it with uh, uh, export control policies, the outbound investments. I mean, on and on and on, I think there's just a, just it was just a wake up call um, in terms of how competition is playing a central lo- role uh, in, the, in this competition with China. And so, you, you know, you point out 55 pieces of legislation and, and continued bipartisanship on important you kind know, of tech competition issues. You know, for the audience, can you pull out one or two of what you would consider the big the, the successes from the commission that you you consider the, the biggest, right, that you're most proud of? Well, I mean, so when when we established the commission, Jessica, one of the one of the questions I had in my interviews with previous executive directors was, hey, what is the right approach to when you establish these commissions? And you get a mixed recommendation. Some people would say, focus on two, three big institutional changes. And I think when you look back, 9-11 is probably a good measurement of that because they recommended establishing uh, the director of national intelligence. And I think that that led to creation of a completely new institutions. And then you have another set of um, feedback that I was receiving is that you've got to do a lot of small recommendations because in totality, the small tactical wins will will accumulate to a big strategic win. Um, I think we did both. Uh, if you look at the length of our report, 759 pages, I think you can see that there's no uh, there's no lack of big recommendations, uh, creating new institutions, but also a lot of small wins. And small wins, uh, I would note, are from those that have moved the needle inside the Department of Defense or intelligence community in terms of how we keep people, how we would hire people, uh, the big wins, I would call, really pushing the CHIPS Act to, across the finish line because early on the commission understood the importance of hardware. Um, and I will tell you a, an anecdote from those conversations. When we met the first or the second time, you know, some of the commissioners who were much more steep um, in, this, uh, in this conversation recommended that we focus on the hardware piece of AI, not just on the software piece. And I pushed back because the executive director, you have to be able to deliver on the mandate given to you by Congress. But their argument was that hardware is an instrumental and a critical piece of how you build cutting-edge AI applications. And so without us as a country really leading on the hardware piece, semiconductors piece, we will not be able to stay ahead on the on the AI space. So I'm glad they overruled me, uh, and I was able to listen to Chris Darby, the CEO of InQtel, um, Andy Jassy, the, now the CEO of Amazon, Safra Katz, the CEO of Oracle, because they insisted that we should take a holistic approach on how we stay ahead on AI. And I think then the hardware chapter, which is, I think, chapter six of our final report, really helped set the stage for the CHIPS Act and build the momentum that we needed as a country to make the necessary investments on the, on the CHIPS piece. 
Awesome. And then now you lead the Special Competitive Studies Project. Um, how does the uh, SCSP continue and expand upon the work of the commission? And so when we got to the end of the AI commission, I think one thing you understand, especially from today's perspective, when, you know, with the release of chat, GPT and BART is how we were, this is 2021, how we were only scratching the itch of what AI is about. And so a lot of the commissioners were talking about that we are at the beginning of the AI journey, we're not at the end. And one of the key recommendations we had was how to be AI ready by 2025 as a nation. And so I think towards the end of the commission's work, um, we really thought that we need to continue this journey in one way or another. And I think one of the models that came across as a, as a viable model was the model that Dr. Kissinger um, mentioned to us, which was a project he led in the 50s called Special Studies Project. So back in the 50s, you know, our country was caught by surprise with the launch of Sputnik satellite by Soviet Union. So in 1950s, what Dr. Kissinger did was he brought the best and the brightest we had in a truly bipartisan fashion to focus on how can we conceptualize and frame the competition against Soviet Union. And so um, they worked for about three years. They studied the issue and they produced a book, which was a, which is really uh, a, which became a bestseller in the fifties called Prospect for America. I mean, I didn't hear much about this book because it's in the fifties. It's hard to find a lot of information uh, from that time and about the project, uh, but the book became a bestseller. And so when we got to the end of the commission, Dr. Kinsey really advised Derek that we should relaunch that kind of a project and have it focused on technology in China, because these are the two dominating feature of today's world um, and the power of nations going forward. So in October of 2021, uh, we shut down the AI commission because by law and by, by statute, uh, that was the end of the commission. Um, these commissions, as I mentioned at the beginning, are time limited, usually two to three years with timely resources. Um, and that's right. Uh, and that's right. That's the right approach, because I think they're really asked to look at a particular problem through a time limited period. And so in October 21, uh, we launched special competitive studies project. We added competitive because according to Bob Work, um, my, my old, uh, uh, my old boss and mentor, he noted that we are in competition with China and in competition, you either win or lose. So that's why we are called special competitive studies project. Technology is the framework of we looking at the competition, and I believe AI is that technology will set the course for the future of the world and ultimately the future of nations. And I think in that competition, we're competing against China because China is probably our nearest competitor when it comes to companies, top-down approach, resources, talent, uh, the ability to deploy technologies. I mean, if you look at the last three to four years, China really has uh, caught a lot of us by surprise uh, you know, with their ability to produce drones, uh, do hyper, uh, hypersonic testing, build and really deploy um, high-speed rail and many other technologies that, you know, we take it for granted. So you mentioned, you know, we as a nation need to be ready by 2025. And, you know, your mission statement says that we're in this generational trial and that 2025 to 2030 is a critical window. And you mentioned China. So to just wake up the audience a little um, and, and to, to keep on that, you know, what's at stake here? You know, what what could the world look like if the U.S. and kind of Western democracies fall behind in this tech competition? So, I mean, the implication, Jessica, will be enormous. Like last year, we produced a report called Mid-Decade Challenges to U.S. National Competitiveness. And in that report, one of the opening chapters uh, is called What Would Losing to China Look Like? 
And it's not a science fiction chapter. It's just what we have done is we have extrapolated the current trends, be it in the technology space, digital space, or data and people space. And what you've had in that chapter is really a potential scenario in 2025 in which you and I can easily wake up and most of the data that goes through the antennas, routers, and modems is built one way or another in China. Uh, the global infrastructure, the global digital infrastructure is built by Chinese companies and is deployed globally. And that would include some of our key partners and allies. Um, all the data that you and I use through the apps would one or another way go through the CCP uh, ch servers out of Beijing. And so it could have been a world in which uh, you and I have never lived uh, to experience, in which um, a country that has a completely different political outlook and organizational principle and system is in charge of uh, global technology. And I think that would have huge implications. It would have implications for our society, for our economy, and ultimately for our national security, because you can only imagine the world in which China would have access to the, the movements of our military people, you know, where uh, the, the, you know, the logistics of our military forces, etc. So, you know, moving now and pivoting to to what you're, you're you're speaking of at the end about U.S. national security interests and, and AI, as we're, you know, looking forward into the future towards the end of this, you know, critical window towards 2030, you know, as we, you know, likely face, and as you talk about your mid-decade report, um, a new kind of warfare with these new technologies, new operational concepts, um, new novel ways that I think we can't even begin to think about, you know, what changing dynamics do you predict? You know, do you start to see something with the um, warfare in Ukraine that reflects, you know, things that you predict for the future that, that we need to start thinking about? So, Jessica, one thing I owe you from the previous question is that uh, not only is that reality um, in that chapter they, we produced uh, just based on our understanding where technology is going. Every document, every strategic document you read from recent history from Beijing uh, will, will, will indicate that they are putting a lot of resources and a lot of attention in that 2025, 2030 timeframe. Um, mm -hmm. uh, they have a strategy called Made in China 2025, which basically means uh, cutting China's dependency from the rest of the world and building the rest of the world's dependency on China. Uh, so that's China 2025. Then you can all see uh, the speculations about the potential scenarios around Taiwan, 26, 27, 28, 29. And then uh, they have a strategy to become the global AI leader by 2030. So all these things are not in isolation. These are the strategic documents, and these are the resources they're dedicating towards executing these strategies. And so they've been clear about where they are going. I don't think we have been clear in terms of understanding their goals and assessments and results. And so I think that's why we need to move faster between 2025 and 2030. Um, to your, uh, to your uh, other question, I think this will have huge, huge implications for the nature of war. I think you're already seeing the impact of, uh, you know, the latest and emerging technologies in the battlefield uh, in Ukraine. Um, you can see the, the drones, the uh, individualization of warfare, um, um, AI, um, cyber, software, these are the predominant feature of what's going on in Ukraine. Uh, in our report from last year, we called for our Department of Defense to adopt what we call it the Offset X strategy, which is a, you know, a set of three key pieces that I think would drive the future of the, of the conflict. Number one is software supremacy. We all see now uh, that in order for you to stay ahead, you have to stay ahead in the software piece. 
I think United States for a long time have we have invested on the hardware piece, but I think now the software has demonstrated uh, sort of like that advantage in the battlefield, and I think Ukraine is a test bet. The second piece is investing in many uh, platforms, small uh, that can be operating in a distributed network uh, uh, environment. And I think uh, here we're talking about drones, unmanned systems, everything that is uh, low cost, uh, many, uh, but you can deploy uh, in non-pervasive environments um, to enable you, you know, to enable you to have visibility, uh, you know, uh, advantage in the theater, uh, and ultimately capabilities to deploy uh, whatever you need to deploy. Uh, and then the third piece would be the human machine teaming. Um, you know, everything you look at is that we're moving into a, a systems in which the machines will will be able to um, complement human uh, abilities. And when you look at ChatGPT, when you look at BARD, when you look at all these systems, these are co-pilots. These are personal assistants that will help us become better in what we do, whether we're writing, generating images, on anything else. So I think the military should also understand that we're moving to the human machine territory now, or the co-piloting phase in which the machines will make our men and women in uniform much, much better informed. They would provide options to them. And I think ultimately uh, will provide a decisive advantage in the battlefield. Can you tell us a little bit more about the individualization of war and or even the psychology of war, right? It's such an interesting and fascinating topic. So, Jessica, that's a great question. And I'm going to repeat a line from our NSCI report, which really captured this uh, well. We said that these new emerging technologies, especially AI or generative AI, will really enable either adversary a state or non-state actor to do a macro targeting at the micro level. What does that mean? Um, all the data that exists out there about you, you know, can easily be pulled. Uh, so the adversary can target you, Jessica, wherever you are. And so at times of crisis, you can envision that intelligenized warfare can become more individualized towards you, towards enabling key nodes or disabling key nodes in our military structure by targeting individuals, senior leadership, uh, key regions, uh, be for political or, you know, like increasing the uh, political uh, disunity among Americans uh, and all these things. So I think uh, this is a new type of warfare that I think our adversary can launch towards us. And I think these are the capabilities that you would probably utilize in that time. So, you know, when we were reading about China's use of AI and development, they have their concept of warfare, intelligence-sized warfare, which seems to go hand in hand with what you were just describing. I mean, what yes. do you think, their, their publication of that and maybe countries that don't have the same kind of ethical considerations or constraints that we may employ here in the U.S.? No, exactly right, Jessica. I mean, intelligence warfare is really the use of data, AI, um, and all the other elements um, towards, you know, like, micro-targeting individuals in the key region, key leadership positions, um, key senior positions, really, to disable the decision-making, to cause confusion in um, uh, times of conflict. The other thing I wanted to say is uh, that, as you noted, our adversary is not bound to the same uh, norms and values that we are. Um, when you look at our Department of Defense, they've been uh, pretty transparent about how they plan to use AI. They have issued time and again memos documents highlighting uh, the responsible and ethical use of these platforms when and if they are deployed. Uh, uh, but uh, on the other side, 
neither Russia or China has released anything on terms of how they're planning, how they're building, and how they're deploying these capabilities. So I think going forward, this is going to be an interesting space to watch because uh, we should also be mindful not to slow our men and women in uniform uh, down by putting these like requirements on top of their existing requirements. Um, and so while, you know, our adversary, uh, you know, can do whatever they want without uh, any accountability placed towards them. That's a wrap for today's episode. Thank you so much um, to Mr. Burkatori for joining us and for Tatum Clifton and Devlin uh, Bernie from NSI and Claude Jennings for their help producing today's episode. Tune in next week when we talk to um, former Representative Will Hurd about his take on AI. Um, and check us out on YouTube where you can see our smiling faces. And if you like what you heard, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe uh, wherever you get your podcasts.